Hey there, my name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors at King's and what a privilege it is to speak in our series, Steadfast Love. One of the great things about being a pastor is that you get to spend lots of time with people, people in different stages of their life and also people from different backgrounds. And from time to time, you get the opportunity to sit down with couples. Sometimes you're speaking to couples at their highest point in their life when they're preparing for their wedding day. And it's really exciting talking to them about their, their big wedding day and just making sure that everything is ready. Of course, they don't really know at that point what's on the horizon. And so I'm always keen to point out that what's most important is not the wedding day itself, but actually the marriage relationship. And at other times, you can find yourself talking to couples at their lowest ebb, when their relationship seems to be at breaking point. Communication has broken down and the couple are in a desperate state. It's so sad to see. In those situations, I find that there needs to be a turning point. They've aired all their grievances, got everything off their chest, but usually there comes a point when one of them turns to the other and says, so what do you want? Do you want this relationship to work? Do you want to have a genuine relationship with me? Marriages can actually be made or broken based on the answer to that question. It's amazing when the answer to that question is yes, I want it to work but it causes deep pain when unfortunately the answer to that question is no. I don't wanna have a genuine relationship. Perhaps one or both people in the relationship deep down don't want the relationship to work and they're unwilling to do the work required to restore the relationship. It's crucial, it's a crucial make or break question. Do you want a genuine relationship? It's a critical question for couples struggling in their relationship, but it's also a crucial question when we consider our relationship with God. There are lots of different images in the Bible that portray our relationship with God, aren't there? For example, he is the creator and we are his creation. Or he is our father and we are his children. Or he is our king and we are his subjects. But an important picture that the Bible uses to illustrate our relationship to God is one of marriage. In this small but powerful book of Hosea that we've been looking at, it describes God as a marriage partner who loves his bride. God is a husband and his people are his bride. And that crucial question, do you want a genuine relationship, is a question that God poses to each one of us. What we find as we look at this book, and particularly as we look in chapter 6 today, is that God wants us to return to him. Despite our failures, despite our unfaithfulness, God is faithful and wants a genuine relationship with each one of us, not a superficial one. We all probably know what it's like to have a superficial relationship with someone, whether that's romantic or other. On the surface, everything looks fine. We're amicable, we enjoy a bit of small talk, we maybe see each other every now and then, but when you scratch beneath the surface, it lacks depth. There's no genuine love, care or affection. Is that what our relationship with God is like? Is it a superficial one or is it a genuine one? Today, as we look at Hosea chapter six, we're gonna be exploring what a genuine relationship with God is like and how we can have that type of relationship. So let's turn to our Bibles and let's read Hosea chapter six, verses one to 11. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. 
He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. As at Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of evildoers, stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, carrying out their wicked schemes. I've seen a horrible thing in Israel. There Ephraim is given to prostitution. Israel is defiled. Also for you, Judah, a harvest is appointed. This is the word of the Lord. The first step to having a genuine relationship with God is to admit that it's a broken one. We see the desire, don't we, of God's people in verse one. Come, let us return to the Lord. This is the voice of God's people, Israel. And the first thing they say here is come, come on now, let us return to the Lord. It tells us something fundamental about our relationship with God. It tells us that fundamentally, it's a relationship that is broken. Just take a moment to consider how each one of us have treated God over the course of our lives, or even perhaps over the course of this last week. We've ignored God, haven't we? We've lived lives like he just doesn't exist. We've taken the good things that he's given us and simply rejected the one who gave them to us in the first place. We've looked at other things for our purpose, our meaning, our pleasure, our satisfaction, rather than to him, and we've lived life like he simply was not there. Let's have a look at verse seven. As at Adam, or in other translations, like all human beings, we have broken the covenant and been unfaithful to God. Look at verse 10. God sees a horrible thing among his people. They are given to prostitution. Israel is defiled. Just imagine for a second if a husband were to treat his wife in this way just living life like she didn't exist, committing adultery, being unfaithful. It would be grounds for divorce, would it not? The relationship would be utterly shattered and broken. What we see here is that our relationship with God is broken, and yet God wants us to return to him. But as we read these verses, you might think, man, you know, God's a funny God. He has a very funny way of showing that he wants us to return. In chapter six, we see some very uncomfortable language, don't we? Have a look at verse one, he has torn us to pieces. Again in verse one, he has injured us. Again in verse five, I killed you with the words of my mouth. God wants us to return to him, but these words seem to be pretty harsh, don't they? They seem like he's treating his people pretty harshly. And you might be here today and you wanna to return to God, honestly, but you read these words and you think, wow, is this the kind of God that I wanna to return to? He seems pretty harsh, doesn't he? But as we read these words, we must remember that it's precisely God's love for us that leads him to act in this way. Because he loves us so deeply, he cannot overlook the seriousness of the brokenness of our relationship. 
Imagine for a second a wife who comes back to her husband who she finds lying on the sofa just scrolling through social media on his phone. Imagine that she says to him, I'm afraid this relationship is not working anymore. I've been having an affair and I'm going to be leaving you for this other man. A tragic and devastating thing to hear. But imagine if that guy doesn't even look up from his phone and just says, okay, be on your way. I wish you well. Imagine that. You could only conclude that that husband didn't really care. His wife has been unfaithful. She's broken the marriage covenant. And if he simply didn't care, it means that he never truly loved her. But not so with God. God is a jealous lover who's been forsaken and it hurts him deeply. He cannot say, oh, well, and just sweep it under the carpet because he loves us and he wants to have a relationship that is restored with us. I think you know and I know that sometimes people have a hard time accepting the idea that God is a jealous God because it often is seen as a, as a bad attribute, isn't it? I mean, who wants to be jealous? But when we think about God's relationship with his people, it's absolutely right and proper that he is jealous. He is jealous because he loves us and his desire is for us to be completely devoted to him. In fact, actually, when we really think about it, we realise that love without jealousy isn't really love at all. You see, the man who doesn't get angry or upset when his wife leaves him for another man doesn't love her precisely because he's not jealous. He doesn't want her steadfast love and devotion. Sadly, if you've been through this yourself and experienced betrayal like this, it's not imaginary. It's not an illustration. You know how deeply this hurts, this, this cuts and you treat it incredibly seriously and, and rightly so. And if that is you here today, I'm really uh, sorry that you've experienced this, really sorry. But God treats our betrayal and rebellion seriously. He doesn't just dismiss it and just sweep it under the carpet right away because it impacts him. He's angry. He's angry at our rebellion, our unfaithfulness. And he often judges Israel to show them that he's not okay. He's not okay with it and he wants them to return to him. So these seemingly harsh words and actions actually act as warnings. They basically act like, come on people, wake up, wake up, come on, wake up from your slumber and come back to me, return to me, because I love you and I want a relationship with you that is completely restored. But in the, in the middle of these uncomfortable warnings, there are lots of hope and comfort for us. Verse one, he has torn us to pieces but, an incredible but, right? But he will heal us. There's another but in verse one. He has injured us, but he'll bind up our wounds. In verse two, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. He promises that when we return to him, he will heal us, revive us, restore us, and enable us to live in his presence. It's a picture of the resurrection life that's available to us if we put our trust in him and have a relationship with him. You see, not only does God invite us to this restored relationship, but he also offers us assurance. Have a look at verse three. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. 
He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. There's so much uncertainty in our society at the moment, isn't there? Interest rates keep getting higher and higher. You might feel like your job isn't secure anymore. You might be concerned by your health. Every day it seems like someone new is striking. It's crazy out there, isn't it? Absolute madness. What is going on? So much uncertainty in the world. But there are very few things that we can be certain of in this, in this world, on this earth. Beside the fact that in England, it's gonna rain at some point during the day. We know that, right? I mean, the weather recently has been terrible. But beside that, we know on this earth that the sun will always rise. When you go to bed at night, we know that the next morning, when we wake up, the sun will rise. In fact, we can even check on our phone the exact time of the day that the sun will rise. It's that predictable. And God says that as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. When we seek him, we will find him. He will come to us and heal us, revive us, restore us, and we'll live in his presence forever. Maybe you're here today and you want to know God, but you are unsure that if you turn to him, whether you'll find him. Well, if that's you, there's comfort here today, isn't there? That when we seek him, we'll find him. When we return, he is there. But, and there's another big but here. He wants our return to be genuine. He wants our return to be genuine. Verse four is a shock. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? At this time, the people of God have actually been split into two kingdoms and here are their names. And God literally looks out on his people and says, what am I gonna do with you? What am I gonna do with you? It goes on in verse four. Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. The words of God's people sound very good, but they're just that words, simple words. They say they want to return to God, but the sentiment doesn't last. It's actually a superficial one. Depending on where you live, uh, you may not see dew that much, to be honest. But imagine you're living in the countryside, you have a huge garden, you wake up in the morning, you go to your back door, you open the door, and on your garden there is just dew everywhere. Well, you'll know that it doesn't last very long. As soon as the sun rises, the dew will evaporate and disappear. Or take mist. You probably would have seen mist or fog in the morning before, and the same thing happens. The sun comes up and very quickly, the mist or the fog just disappear. And God says that is what your love is like. You like the idea of returning to God, but it's not genuine. Your love is like the early morning mist that disappears. So imagine again, a married couple, they're having an argument and one of them is a bit like God and says, your love is like the morning mist that disappears. And the other person says, so what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do about that? How can I show you love that doesn't disappear? As God's people, that's what we're asking today, isn't it? What do you want from us, God? What do you really want? And the answer comes in verse six. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. God's people were really into their religious ceremonies and burnt offerings. You may have noticed that, particularly if you read the Old Testament. You see, when a person sinned, they would be required to present an uh, animal sacrifice to the priest. And the priest would kill the animal and they would, they would burn the animal on a fire to make atonement for that person. You see, it was intended to bring people closer to God and they would be regularly made aware of their own sin and the need for them to have a restored relationship with God. 
and the animal would be sacrificed on their behalf in their place. But the problem was that this became religious ritual rather than people having an attitude of love and obedience to God. You see, the bottom line here is that the people were hypocrites. They would live lives of idolatry, as we've seen in this series over the last couple of weeks. Absolute idolatry, worshipping other gods, living immoral, violent lives and going about it happily. They would ignore the needs of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalised and they would just think to themselves, you know what, it's okay. In the end, we'll come back to God and he will forgive us. He will restore us. It will be absolutely fine. We see the kind of things that they were going up to in verses 8 to 10. We see that the people were evildoers. Even the priests, get that, even the priests were murderers. And the whole people were defiled. It says that they were given to prostitution. It's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it, of the human condition. What's going on in these people? They've really turned away from God, doing all sorts of nonsense. And they were doing all this while at the same time going to the priests and asking God to forgive them. But the truth is they were unwilling to change their lifestyle. They weren't interested in a genuine relationship with God. In fact, to be honest, they were taking God for a ride. They were literally mugging him off, to be honest. Living without any regard or acknowledgement of God, just going about their daily rituals. Oh, you know what, we'll burn a sacrifice here, we'll burn a sacrifice there, it'll be fine. You know what, we'll never have a genuine relationship with God. You know, uh, we see this happening today, don't we? We see people performing all sorts of different religious rituals, but there is seemingly no genuineness to their faith. Perhaps we approach church a bit like that, don't we? We attend on a Sunday every now and then, maybe at Christmas, maybe at Easter, and we think, you know, we've performed our religious ritual, our religious duty, but Jesus doesn't have our heart, and he certainly doesn't have our whole lives. Maybe you've heard people say, oh, I'm a Christian, I was baptised as a baby. And when they're saying that, they're saying that I've performed a religious ritual and therefore I'm a Christian. But surely being a Christian requires more than that. We know that, right? Surely being a Christian means more than that. But you know what? We too can observe many different rituals. We can break bread together. We can gather together to, to pray. We can read our Bibles. We can attend church regularly. And these things are all good things, by the way, and things that we ought to do as followers of Jesus. But if we aren't careful, they just become empty rituals. Things we do to fulfill our religious duty rather than being an expression of love and faith and trust in God. So what does God say to us? What does he want from us? He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The word mercy here is the same word translated love in verse 4. God wants faithful, steadfast love, not sacrifice. He wants genuine relationship, not ritual. He wants commitment, not ceremony. Devotion more than your deeds. Your heart, not your hypocrisy. Your love and loyalty, not your lies. He wants you, all of you, your heart and your hands. Loving him from in here and living for him out there. That's what he wants for you and that's what he wants for me. You see, God has steadfast love for us and he wants steadfast love from us. That's his desire. That's his desire, friends. That's what he, that's what he wants. You know, Jesus himself used verse six when talking to the religious leaders of his day. 
In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house and many tax collectors and sinners are there eating with him, having a great time. When the experts in religion turn up and they see this and they work, they're outraged, they're angry. And they say, why does this guy, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're disgusted. And on hearing that, Jesus says this, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus here is talking to Pharisees who aren't genuine in their faith. On the surface, everything looks all right. It looks like they've got everything together. They're holding it all down. It's all fine. They say the right things. They do the right things. And they just keep up this religious facade. But it's just that, a facade. They don't have a genuine love for God or for other people. That's why they want to actually exclude people like tax collectors and prostitutes. They love rules and they want other people to follow the rules, but they lack genuine love and mercy. Jesus, on the other hand, is a huge contrast. He comes along and he puts his arm around the prostitute. He puts his arm around the tax collector. He puts his arm around the sinner and he welcomes them. Jesus says, I've come to help those who realise they need for help and I invite them in to a genuine relationship with me. I will love them, I'll protect them, and I'll show them in the end how to live. You see, Jesus in the end provides the answer. You may have noticed this actually in Hosea chapter six, verse two, it says, on the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. To the early Israelite reader, they may have read that and just thought, okay, well, that's fine. God will restore us pretty soon, in just a matter of days. You know, it's pretty soon. It's going to come. He's going to restore us. It will all be okay. But we know, with the benefit of having the whole Bible, that the number three is not an accidental inclusion here. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, Jesus was in the grave for three days and then rose on the third day, bringing restoration to anyone who would trust in him. You see, Jesus makes it possible for us to live in God's presence forever. On the cross, Jesus took the very punishment that we all deserve. He was literally the perfect sacrificial lamb for us on our behalf. And when we trust in him, he forgives us for all our sin. He changes us from within and restores us to a right relationship with God forever. So really, I come back to that question at the start, that crucial question. Do you want a genuine relationship with God? I wonder how you would answer that question today. God has steadfast love for us and he wants to have genuine steadfast love from us. I'm uh, married to Amy, she's the love of my life, brilliant, brilliant woman. And uh, I know it's hard to believe, those of you who know me, but I am actually not perfect, all right? I get things wrong every now and again. And there's been times in our marriage when I've had to apologize a lot, and I mean a lot. And I remember on one occasion, I was apologizing for yet another thing I had done wrong. And Amy turns and says to me in no uncertain terms, I don't want to hear you are sorry anymore. I will know you are sorry when you change. <laughs> she wasn't messing around. She wasn't playing games. Serious but profound words. You see, if I just keep saying sorry and never change my behavior, sorry means nothing. 
My words are meaningless. I'm just almost saying them just to get her off my back. You know, leave me alone, I'm sorry. And she's right to call me out on that. I need to drop the facade of pretending that I'm sorry when I know deep down that I'm gonna be a repeat offender. I'm gonna offend again. And isn't this how we treat God? Oh, we say sorry. Oh, you know, we're like, oh Lord, I'm really sorry. But we know that he's gonna forgive us. We know that he's gonna welcome us back and accept us. But deep down, we know that we're gonna be a repeat offender again. And so are we genuinely sorry? Just like the Israelites, just like the Israelites. But you know what, repentance requires a change. I don't know about you, I have two, two boys, brilliant boys, and uh, I, I ask them this question time and time again. I say to them, boys, what does sorry mean? And they repeat back, sorry means we'll never do it again. Yes, praise God. I say to them again, boys, boys, what does sorry mean? Sorry means I'll never do it again. And we have to remind them time and time again. And to be honest, we too need to be reminded time and time again. That's what repentance is about. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of direction. We were living one way, doing a certain thing, living a certain way, but we repent, we say sorry, we put our faith in Jesus and we live in a completely different direction. Our minds are changed. Sorry means that we'll never do it again. If we genuinely love Jesus, we will make a genuine return to him, repent, and our lives will be changed as a result. Jesus said himself in John chapter 14, verses 15 to 17, he said this, if you love me, keep my commands, and I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Is your relationship with God genuine? If not, or you're unsure, can I encourage you today, using the words of Hosea, come, come, let us return to the Lord. And as we've just read in John, as we return to the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and will help us to live for him and will be with him forever. Praise God and amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you today and we acknowledge just how broken our relationship with you is. We acknowledge just how broken we are. And we come back to you. We want to genuinely return to you. We ask that you forgive us for our sin and our unfaithfulness. We ask that you fill us with your spirit and we ask that you help us to change and to live for you in every area of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.